You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 146. What's up, Mark? Uh, man, we are all so busy. Really good stuff going. Y'all got a bunch of great stuff going. You know, we have a bunch of great stuff going. It's just kind of cool to live, you know, in 2018, this point in history where we can use technology to our benefit and have all these balls in the air. So if, if you're listening and you want to know what I'm talking about, you just got to stay tuned. We've got new shows coming out. Jake is doing and Colin are doing a bunch of great stuff. So, you know, good, good stuff. But before we go any further, let's talk about supporting the show. If you want to support the show, it's ridiculously easy. Just leave us a review. We've got a couple of good ones. Uh, got me interested in oil and gas. I started listening to this podcast about a year ago, and it got me interested in the oil and gas industry. I now work for a financial research firm interviewing and networking for executives and experts in the industry. Thank guys for sparking my interest. And that's from Tobias. And actually, uh, Jake, you don't know this, but I actually do some uh, speaking for Tobias's company. So it, it kind of is funny how cool. this all got connected. Yeah. And then great podcast. This is by uh, Dane Elliott. I'm glad I found this podcast about six months ago. I've been in this industry for 17 years and everything from logistics to inspection and now downhole tools. I appreciate the insight that you and guys provide, and I really enjoyed the happy hour last week. Good deal. Uh, keep up the good work. And that's uh, from Dane from Next Gen Oil Tools. So, Dane, glad to see that you came to happy hour. Uh, we're going to be doing one every month. And, and Jake, it's expanding. We're going to start doing these in other cities really soon. So everybody stay tuned. Uh, this is our first Friday Q&A. So, Jake, you want to write off the first question? Yep. You guys know how it works. You write in the uh, questions and we hopefully answer them. So without further ado, let's get into it. First question is from Chris from Texas. His role is, uh, he just works in HSE. Uh, his question, uh, a little long, but let's get into it. Lots of thanks to you guys for your time. Your podcast is the interprovincial informational pipeline of the oil and gas industry. Some big words in there. It helps me stay a step ahead of the curve and serves to inform our customers and employees uh, the field that I work in. The question I have is I have a wearable technology idea for any industry, but would particularly serve the oil and gas industry. It helps detect an unseen threat that causes lifelong lasting consequences. I want help continuing to develop another the idea, but I don't necessarily want to share it because I don't want it to get stolen or replicated. What are some steps to take to protect the idea from theft while also finding partners to develop the idea? Any tips would be much appreciated and connections to trustworthy partners would be awesome as well. First and foremost, it kind of depends on what it is. If it's obviously it's wearable tech, so it's hardware. So I think getting a patent is a good idea. That's, so a, a, couple, that's a good start. <laughs> so, so a couple of things, and this is my first one's going to be funny. Uh, so Chris from Texas, avoid talking about this. Now, we do realize that you just talked about this in our audience in front of 370,000 people. Well, actually, I think that number's bigger now. But just be real careful who you talk to about this. So avoid revealing too much. Make sure that every single person you get involved in this, you have a non-disclosure in place. You can uh, trademark your name, and then you can also provide for a patent on the hardware. Um, that's usually a little bit later. But, but the final thing is, in this day of, of, of LinkedIn and social media, stalk the people that you're going to interface with. Go read about them. See if there are any other people out there complaining that they took an idea or whatever. But with all that said, I'm going to actually, Chris, reach out uh, to you separately and connect you with a company called Realware. Uh, you can trust these people completely. They're the first intrinsically safe, the only intrinsically safe wearable at all. I guess it sounds like it may be some synergies there. So I'll make that connection via email. I'll let you run with it. But just really be careful who you talk to and put non-disclosures in place with everybody, even your friends, even your parents, get a non-disclosure in place. I'll kind of take another approach to that as well as 
I, I think a big thing is that, you know, ideas are, are crap, but uh, execution is everything. And I'll make the analogy that I feel like I can give away our entire playbook and code base to WellHub and, and give it to some of our competitors, and they still wouldn't be able to execute the way that we will. So you could have the greatest idea in the world, but just because you show it to somebody doesn't mean they necessarily have the legs to actually execute on it. So that's actually that a good point, well. Jake. It's like that with the podcast, right? We, there's a lot of companies out there, a lot of people out there doing podcasts, but they don't really compete with us because they haven't figured out how to monetize like we do. And I've actually sat down with people and told them how we do it and they still can't replicate it. Even after I explained to them how to do it. So that's a good point too. Don't, don't be in total fear because you're right. The execution is what is actually important, not the idea. Yep. Cool. Next question is from Alex. He's uh, in uh, geoscience and petroleum engineering. I'm guessing he might be a student. Why as an industry do we strive for new technology when there's much technology that we have shelved yet not returned to? I believe there are many solutions currently in the market, but are not being utilized to their utmost potential. Please don't get me wrong. We need to innovate and create new technology and applications. However, we need to leverage and share the successes we've had and find across the silo solutions that already exist as well. Can you please share your thoughts on this topic? I think a big part of that is due to lack of usability. I think I would 100% agree that there's a lot of solutions in place that are extremely powerful. I don't think they're the most user-friendly. And so you have to be able to build something that is intuitive, where there's the minimal learning curve. You know, Joe Schmo, the engineer who hates computers, can get on there and use it very easily. If it's not built that way, it will not be adopted. And so it can be the greatest solution in the world and nobody's going to use it. Yeah, and I think I know who Alex is, although since he didn't mention his company, I'm not going to mention it either. But Alex, I can tell you something else. Our industry as a whole historically has been siloed, both from a business point of view and from a cultural point of view, and there's a lack of collaboration. So you look at a big company like, say, ExxonMobil, the people at ExxonMobil E&P may have some really cool processes and tools that work really well that would be very useful in ExxonMobil Pipeline, but they don't talk to them. And ExxonMobil Pipeline has no insight that they're doing this in Exxon E&P. And you multiply that through all the different business units just inside of Exxon, and then look at all the different companies in the oil and gas industry. We don't share data. We don't share best practices because people think it's competitive. Now, if you listen to our, any of our other shows, like the HS&E show, we're starting to get there around HS&E stuff where companies are sharing more than just the fact they had an incident, but what the root cause was, what's the preventative steps, how do you mitigate the risk? And I think that's awesome because that just helps our industry as a whole. But Alex, I think it's the same way with the technologies that we have. They're siloed. They're stuck in one business unit, one service company, and the rest of the own company doesn't know that technology is there. So I, I think it's a cultural part of oil and gas that is, is changing, which is a good thing. I think we just have to give it a couple years before that cultural of collaboration inside of companies and inside of the industry gets much better than it is now. And I think a lot of the technology in place, I kind of say this whenever you know I'm talking with companies or investors or whatnot for WellHub, is a lot of the systems in place contribute more to the problem of data being siloed than they actually are contributing to any kind of solution. Uh, agree, if that 100%. makes sense. So you're adding more databases, you're adding more places for people to, to look for information. I was having a conversation with uh, an engineer the other day at Apache, great guy. And he said he spends most of his day really beating his head against his keyboard, looking for data that he needs to do his job. You know, And so he's diving into a share drive and he's looking in a billion different folders and he's having to email people. And then maybe when he finds it, he doesn't have the permissions to look at it. You know, and so that just slows down progress. It, it inhibits people from being able to actually do their jobs. You know, when 80% of your time is spent on aggregation and preparation of data from going and diving into these deep silos to find the information to actually do any kind of analysis or just perform your job, that's a huge problem. You know, and we're seeing that across the industry, especially in upstream. 
Yeah, and it's it's pervasive through the entire industry. And once again, though, I think it kind of goes back to the culture that's existed that is slowly but finally starting to change. Which, by the way, Jake, I invest in WellHub. Audience, Great. you you go invest too. I can't say it's your best investment you'll ever make legally, but I can say it. I can say it. Go invest while you still can. <laughs> All right. Next question is from I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name. Uh, last name's Lamb, aspiring HSE engineer. Would you do a podcast on job leads to the HSE field for young professionals? Is there any particular projects, volunteer works, associations, organizational benefits for gaining industry knowledge and hands-on experience? That boy, we love to niche our podcast, but to do one on just on job leads and HSE for young professionals, that's super niche. One thing you can go to, Mr. Lamb, is that we actually have an HSE podcast that might be valuable to you. There's a bunch of associations. API has a Center for Offshore Safety. There's uh, OSHA has uh, Oil and Gas Safety Health Alliance. There's also several oil and gas HSE conferences. And so if, if I was if I was you, I would actually reach out to the conferences first and ask to volunteer. And trust me, they'll take you on. What that does is that gets you into the conference without you having to pay for it, but they're also going to have you doing some type of work. And typically it's monitoring the doors or, or moving, you know, shuttling people around or whatever. Well, now in a non-sales, non-marketing, non-job hunting sort of way, you're now dealing with the people at the hs and conference. And guess what they are? They're HSE professionals in oil and gas. So I think that'd be one of the, the, the first things I would do is just, you know, Google oil and gas HSE conference, or sometimes it's HSE Q. Outside of oil and gas, they call it EHS. But Google those conferences, reach out to conference organizers and tell them, hey, I'm a student, I want to volunteer. And almost all of them will say yes. And it's going to give you contacts and allow you to network with HSE professionals in a way that you could never do on your own. Yep. Great answer. All right. Next is a question from Paige Williams, who's a project manager at BP. She writes, I have a real thing for your podcast, gents. Keep up the great work. Mark, what is your opinion on the traditional large upstream mega project that the super majors tend to be so good at? Will they continue? And then there's a second part, but go ahead and answer that and I'll jump in the next part. So yes, because that's what the large super majors are good at. Economically, that's their their sweet spot. These huge, large capex, multi billion dollar year, fifty year life cycle projects. Very few companies can pull that off, and they do it very well. It's how they make the money. Now, what you're seeing in our industry as a whole, and I don't just mean upstream. I also mean pipelines, uh, midstream and downstream, and even the service companies. Is you're seeing very exact specialization around smaller projects. And so even the super majors are realizing that, you know, their ability to make money just offshore is not going to be as important as their ability to make money overall. So look at all the shale plays, not just here in North America and in the U.S., but all over the world that's starting to develop. Those are small projects and they're nimble projects and they're fast projects from from spudding the well to first first oil. And so they're having to learn how to do this, but you're seeing companies that are much smaller than the majors get really, really good at that. And then it ends up driving this, this weird cycle of the majors decide they should just buy the smaller company because it's quicker and easier. But then they have to be real careful that they don't slow down the innovation and the speed that the small company works through when they bring them in their folds, which is from the outside looking in, it's, it's actually really uh, fascinating. So will they continue? Yes. Are they going to be the only way that the majors make money now and in the future? No, they, they, the majors are learning. They have to do other things to, to guarantee uh, cash flow. Cool. And the second part of the question is, uh, Jake, congrats on the birth of your son. Thank you. What do you think the world of oil and gas will look like when he enters the workforce in 20 years or so? 
It's a great question. So I guess to kind of preface that, a, a big part of our mission is kind of to cultivate the cultural shift in oil and gas and bridge the gap between the tech-dominated world that we live in today and our industry and kind of bring it into you know the, the modern age. Uh, so what does that mean? Most college grads today don't really think about working in oil and gas. They don't really see the appeal. They think it's an old and antiquated industry. And, and in some regards, it's true. You know, I honestly thought the same thing before I came into it and before I became absolutely fascinated with the industry. I think the, the cool thing is the more time you spend in oil and gas, the more time you don't realize you know everything. It seems like every day I learned something new that I had no clue about. You know, I think uh, as an industry, we need to be able to attract the best talent in the world outside of the engineers and geologists and landmen. But I'm talking about the best executives, the best data scientists, the best project managers, the best hiring managers and so on. You know, in order to do that, we have to understand the world that people want to work in. We've seen from like an office cultural perspective. I've been in some of the offices of some of the biggest companies in the world recently, you know, some of the super majors. And I think that they are building campuses that rival Facebook and Google, to be honest with you. I mean, maybe that's a mild exaggeration, but I mean, they're amazing. No, I don't think so at all, Jake. I think you're absolutely right. I went to the ExxonMobil campus uh, last week, and it is a mini city, literally. I mean, they have restaurants. They've got uh, places to take your cars to work on. Uh, they've got uh, cleaners. They've got anything you can possibly imagine they have there. Doctors, dentists. Child care. Child care yeah. there, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. They had a NASCAR in the lobby of the building that I was in. That was pretty cool, too. You know, so it's understanding that and building an environment where people will actually enjoy going to work. You know, as stupid as it may sound, it has a huge impact on people's happiness and enjoyment at their jobs. So I'm glad that some of the larger companies are realizing that and building a workplace that facilitates that. It'll be nice to see midsize operators, maybe larger operators, you know, especially like on the independent side to to kind of follow suit. Uh, I know it's a little harder to do it. You don't have to build the biggest office in the world, but just, you know, build a place that people enjoy coming to work, you know, where it's just not white walls and cubicles. Nobody wants to do that day in and day out. I'd also like to see, I'd imagine a world where, where some of these operators are just operating more lean, not necessarily from a headcount perspective, but by restructuring the organization to enable faster data-driven decisions. So no more meetings for a meeting for a meeting. Or no more managers of the managers of the managers. Like, Mark, we saw this in the Marine Corps. Let's be honest. It was just like, especially like when we, we had like formation somewhere, it was 15 minutes prior to 15 minutes prior. <laughs> like we had to, we had to be at the range at like, you know, zero nine hundred. But so we got it. We got down to the armory at like zero three. And so, you know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. We see this in the corporate world too. And so eliminating that and, and just streamlining to faster, faster decisions, like I mentioned, you know, the good analogy is big ships turn really slow. So if you can just model your organization as a jet ski where you can just whip around and, and, and make decisions quickly and implement ideas very fast, that'll be huge. So I think that would be the future. I think uh, blockchain tech will have a profound impact in the industry in the next five years. I think it's still early to see how it's actually going to be adopted in the industry. But I think uh, on the land side, I think it'll have a big effect, especially imagine putting all like land and lease records on the blockchain rather than having to go to the courthouse to, to find records. That'll be big. Dealing with regulatory agencies now, because Colin and I have had to do this recently, is an absolute nightmare. So I'd hope that regulatory agencies, you know, with the Railroad Commission, the OCC, so on, will become somewhat standardized in the reporting requirements and data types that they uh, require. As of right now, it's all over the place. And it's not necessarily fun to work with them. <laughs> and I think anybody will tell you that anybody, I know Paige worked in uh, regulatory for like, what, like nine or 10 years. She'll tell you the same thing. She tells me a lot of nightmare stories about that. 
I'd say also, I'd hope that investment firms stop throwing money at what's hot and throw money at what makes sense, aka margins and profitability. I'd also hope that public companies would stop making decisions just to drive shareholder value and find new new KPIs to measure the performance and only make business make decisions that make true business sense. Yeah, That's so the world I, that I want to live in. <laughs> so I got my two cents here too. And if if you listen to any of the other stuff out there that I've been doing, you, you, you know what I'm about to say. But we have this talent shortage headed toward oil and gas industry globally like a freight train. And we can't get away from it. It's going to hit us. It's starting to happen already. There's not enough young people that want to go to work in our industry. And like you said, Jake, not just engineers and project managers, but accountants, HR people, you know, IT people. It's very, very few young people in the world want to come work for our industry because they don't understand our industry. So as an industry, we have to change this negative public perception so that we can attract talent because this industry and whether you're talking about upstream, midstream or downstream, this is an industry of projects and engineers. And if you don't have engineers and project managers and your, your total industry is focused on doing projects, what's going to happen to us? I think the other thing is going to happen because of this exact shortage of talent is you can see technology be adapted to replace the, the butts and seats that the companies can't fill. Long-term-wise, I think that's a good solution because it could drive safety metrics. Short-term-wise, there's a lot of companies out there freaking out because you have a lot of vendors using a lot of buzzwords and nobody's actually talking about real business issues. So 20 years from now, I think we're going to be in a good place as an industry. I've been waiting for this forever, and it's just, you know, it's time for things to change. And luckily, Jake, things are starting to change. Yep, I agree. Cool. Next question is from Susan Cook, HR Director at Kinder Morgan. She writes, can you two talk about making data-driven decisions in the area of human capital? I've been hearing a lot of hype from our vendors, but what does it really mean? How can large enterprises effectively uh, leverage these new technologies? Uh, just love your show, guys. So, Susan, let me – I just it's so funny. I didn't even read this question. It was next, but I just talked about vendors. Love your vendors. Have your A-list vendors. Make them partners, not vendors, Susan, but don't listen to them out the gate. They have their own business drivers, right? So the first thing is you talk about human capital. So you basically talk about how do you manage your workforce in a way that makes the most sense for your business. Number one is you need a strategy. Forget about data, data-driven decisions. Forget about that. What is your strategy? So I'm going to make this up because I don't know, but let's say Kinder Morgan right now is suffering because they can't hire enough skilled workforce in North America to complete their projects on time. And let's say the other thing Kinder Morgan's dealing with is negative public perception where either government organizations, state organizations, or private organizations are fighting your projects publicly so it makes it hard for you to build your pipelines. Well, you'd want to work your strategy backwards from that. I'm not quite sure what that would look like, but part of that strategy would be, of course, how do you find, how do you attract more skilled labor? For instance, maybe there's welders in automotive that are laid off and, and, you know, up around Detroit that you could hire and bring out here and train. So that would be part of your strategy. So build the strategy first based upon what you're trying to drive in the business. Then once you build that strategy, you have to identify the key areas that make a difference. So as Jake would say, which, which, what can you do to actually move the boat the furthest? And when you identify those keys, areas, then start looking at what data feeds into those key areas. And that's when you move over to data targeting. So what what of those key areas will benefit the most from you doing data analytics? Then you have to start collecting and analyze the data. And that's going to be the hardest part because I guarantee you what you need is siloed. And there's this is a point 
point where you could start talking to your vendors about, do they have a product that can pull all the siloed data out and put it in one data lake somewhere so you can actually start doing the analysis on this data that you're collecting for the key areas. And then finally, we talked about this earlier, but all the data in the world means nothing, right? There's all kinds of uh, BI tools out there that can give you all kinds of cool readouts and everything. How much of that can you actually use? It's about the rubber hit the road. I'd rather you take a little bit of data and make several small decisions that change the business metrics in a positive way than look at a whole bunch of data, make a bunch of big decisions that never get implemented. So that's that's how I would work through that if you're looking at how do you make data-driven decisions in the area of human capital. The good thing about doing this around human capital is all oil and gas companies for years have HR systems in place that have all this data that's not being used effectively. So the data is there. Just be careful you don't turn this into a data analytics exercise versus a business exercise. Yeah, all great points. Cool. Last question is from Neil Hutton, account manager somewhere. Thanks for answering my question on your Q&A about the row and remote technical staff. I asked that question because I'm looking to start my own production company. Jay, can you help me with this? I'm mostly struggling with getting funding. I've considered using crowdfunding, ICOs, but I'm completely ignorant. Before I can help, I have a significant amount of questions. So I think better than answering on the air, I think I'm just going to reach out and we'll have a conversation about it. Obviously, Colin and I just did this recently with starting our own EMP. It was obviously, it took a long time to get to that point. Nothing, there's nothing easy about raising money, whether it's traditional venture capital, whether it's through crowdfunding, or whether it's through some kind of new age you know, funding route like ICOs or STOs or anything like that. So what I'll do is I'll just send you an email, Neil, and we'll, uh, we'll have a conversation about it. Yeah, Neil, let me throw my two cents. So first thing is I, I, I get this sort of question quite often, and it's often by people that want to stand up a business in the next couple of months. First thing you have to understand from a time awareness point of view, you're talking about a couple of years with the work here, Neil. The other thing is you're talking about Roe, which is result only work environment, and it's 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 a way to manage your human resources. What you really need to do is have an existing company already functioning with at least a client or two, some cash flow. Trying to raise funding around an idea is just about impossible. So if if whenever you and Jake connect, depending on where you are in that maturity cycle, if, if this is just an idea, which it looks like it is, you got a lot of work to do before you even start thinking about funding. Once you have paying customers, whether you're making a profit or not, then it gets easier to make other organizations realize maybe they should have to, it'd be worth their investment to put some capital in what you're doing. So you need a business first, bottom line. I mean, to kind of break it down in the most simplest terms, uh, in order to, to start your own production company. Uh, there's two things you need. Obviously, you need a deal and you need capital. It's kind of like a chicken and egg kind of thing. We looked through probably, I don't know, at least a couple dozen deals before we, we came onto the one that we bought. And so we had been working with investors probably for like maybe six to eight months prior, at least, heavily. And we didn't bring any deals to them until we found that last one. And then we, we put it on to obviously kind of like a, like a pro forma, not really pro forma, it's more like a true like cash flow analysis and yada, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they invested then. So it, it, it's, it's definitely hard, uh, but you got to start small. We, we didn't buy like, we didn't go out and buy 500 wells for a first deal, obviously, because it would be absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, uh, long story short, we'll have a conversation offline and um, I hope we can help you out with that. And speaking of helping people out, if you'd like to help yourself out and win one of these awesome Red Wing offshore bags, it's ridiculously easy. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in. We draw one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. Uh, rig count, Jake, where are we this, this week? 1,121 rigs. Good number. It's the highest I've seen in a while. Yeah, very good number. 
Uh, Vince on deck, uh, we have our monthly Oil & Gas Global Network Super Happy Hour, which is what I've had several people already tell me it is. It's uh, the end of this month, Tuesday, June 26th in Houston. Uh, we've changed locations. Our last uh, several happy hours have been outstanding. This one is probably going to be even better than outstanding. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Go sign up now because we have a cap at 300 and I think we have about 100 seats left and it's we only had it open for a couple of days. And then if you'd like to find out about these events plus the rest of it, it's really easy. I put a monthly newsletter. We'll put a link in the show notes. Go sign up. I never spam you. We take all the oil and gas events plus freebies and put it in your inbox once a month. If uh, we talked about the Oil & Gas uh, Super Happy Hour, we're taking sponsors for that. It's ridiculously cheap. I think it's $455. We're booked, Jake, till the very end of the year. So if you want to get your company in front of our Oil & Gas crowd for almost no money at all, you'll have to pony up and it won't be till 2019. But if you don't hurry, it might be 2020. So yep. so reach out reach out to Julie and she'll be happy to take care of you there. We've also got the Plug and Play Innovation Day also on the 26th. It starts a little bit earlier uh, at 8.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. So you can go over to Halliburton's campus. It, pretty much what it's going to be is it's uh, Plug and Play is a VC firm out of Silicon Valley. They're thinking about making a heavy push into the Houston market. They have a, a good amount of oil and gas tech startups in their portfolio. And so about 10 of those startups are going to be presenting their technologies there. They're going to have some, uh, there's a keynote presentation from Maynard Holt, CEO of Tudor Pickering and Holt, and a bunch of other uh, speakers and, and startups and a bunch of bunch of cool stuff happening. So we'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. So feel free to check that out and then roll over to our super happy hour afterwards. Uh, just make sure you RSVP. Yeah. And Jake and I are speaking all over the world this year. If you'd like us to come speak to your country club, <laughs> your gun range, your company, your sales and marketing organization. We're actually uh, pretty soon be speaking to a large operators, a young professionals group internally. Uh, just reach out to Jake and I'll be happy to share the details. This, of course, is the first Friday Q&A. You heard the shout outs. If you'd like to get a shout out, go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on ask a question, submit your question. If we use it on the air, we'll give you a big shout. And then while you're there, um, go ahead and give us your email address. We never spam anybody, but we're actually finally starting to use those email addresses. So if the email address that you would leave at the site, you'll be one of the first ones to be noticed about our happy hour and other events that we're doing because Julie's doing a real good job of taking those email addresses and, and, and um, building a newsletter for it. Did you mention that contest we're running for the happy hour? Oh, no. The other thing about the happy hour, and this is the first time we've done this, Jake, is that we're giving away $250 in cash. And the way you win the $250 is ridiculously easy. You go sign up for the happy hour, and then you go get your friends to sign up. And whoever has most of your friends sign up, and they don't have to be friends. They could be your coworkers. They could be your relatives. They could be people you don't like as long as they sign up. Whoever has the most people are signed up wins, and we're going to write you a check for $250. So easy way to make some money and have free drinks and have good food and network with your oil and gas peers. Can't beat that. Can't beat it. So we look forward to seeing you guys. Yeah, and then finally, if you haven't joined our LinkedIn group, uh, it's getting better. <laughs> Not our group. Our, our group's always been awesome, but LinkedIn as a whole is actually getting much better. Go sign up. It's OGGN on LinkedIn. That's about it. You ready to get out of here, Jake? Yep, let's do it. All right, remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.